Rob Fain for Jill. Pretty sobering conversation with Lisa LaPointe in our last segment. We went live to a press conference that is still going on, but I think we got enough meat on the bone that we can start to dissect at least the generalities, and we'll bring you some more audio from that press conference as it becomes available to us. But one of the things that I want to get into is, well, there's a number of things I want to talk to you, but just the urgency that the province has on these toxic drug deaths. I mean, the numbers, just before we get to our guest, uh, staggering. I mean, you think of these numbers, more than 100,000 people in this province have challenges with opioids, all of them currently at risk. More than 86% of the deaths in 2022, unregulated drug use. That's a, a number that I think we're going to start with here. As we bring on Guy Felicella, harm reduction and recovery expert. Guy, good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, let's get into this because I know this press conference is still going on and they're peeling back the onion, but just some of the generalities that we heard uh, from Lisa LaPointe, I'd love to kind of put them on your plate and see what you make of them. First and foremost, right now, uh, that fentanyl is still a real heavy hitter in this province. And then again, that 86% of the deaths in this province were from unregulated drugs. Can you break that down for me and the listeners today? Yeah, it's just uh, the drug supply that's um, available uh, to market to people has just increasingly gotten worse over the last, you know, now going on. I would say it started getting worse in 2012, but uh, the way it is today, it's just it's so bad um, that whether you use it, it's just basically Russian roulette for for anyone. Um, and so, you know, the majority of people as well, you know, everybody thinks this is a downtown east side issue. No, this is right across the province issue in every single community. And unfortunately, you know, uh, we just haven't been able to, you know, remove people um, from accessing that market. And the marketing of organized crime with these drugs is to create drugs that are powerful and addictive to, you know, have repeat customers. And so, um, you know, they've been doing this a long time and are very good at it. And anything that we try to do is just to try to help people, you know, slowly move away from that. Um, And it just hasn't been to the effect that uh, I'm sure anybody would want. Well, Lisa had mentioned that in the last couple of years, and I think Bonnie Henry's reiterated it, I've been listening through the break as well, that they're they're trying, that since 2020, of course, the face of drug use in this province has changed somewhat in the supply as well. Um, do you think the province is making any headway in this, or is it just a, um, trying to spit on a fire, if you will? Well, I mean, we're trying to innovate things to do our best with um, what we're able to, you know, um, what's available uh, to try to remove people from the illicit drug supply as it, as it works. Uh, you know, uh, obviously not. Um, but the innovation is to try something to do whatever is possible uh, to, to give people access to safer substances. And just unfortunately, you know, for, for the small few as well, uh, it's so small, this, the hydromorphone program for people. I mean, it's astronomically small. Um, and the amount of hydromorphone that's dispensed in the province of British Columbia was for about 80,000 people um, with over a half million dispensing. But this was even before safer supply even existed. So when you actually look at this is, you know, the amount of the safer supply programs is just not, um, unfortunately, nowhere near enough to address the, 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 the amount of people who use drugs in this province. 
I thought it was really interesting that one of the first things that Miss LaPointe said was, listen, you want to make the downtown east side the face of this. And and again, we're talking about a what, six to eight block radius where we see 14% of the deaths in this province. But they were really quick to identify today that this is a provincial problem, that we're seeing struggles on Vancouver Island in the interior up north. Is that something that I think we really need to drive home? Is this just isn't people struggling on the downtown east side? This is coast to coast all the way through. Oh, for sure. Like, I, I mean, I've been saying it for years. I, I mean, it's not a downtown East side issue. It's a every, every community issue. And I, listen, I go into communities across the province and there's not one community that I go into that doesn't have an issue there. And so that, that shows a lot. It, it says a lot um, that guess what, you know, there's access to illicit substances everywhere. And um, we just haven't been able to remove people from accessing those. And it's just, it's just, truly heartbreaking because of the, you know, the sadness and the loss and the impacts that it has on our community. If you look at, you know, the constructions and trades industry is particularly hit hard. The longshoremen industry is hit hard. I mean, we're talking, it is everywhere. It doesn't matter. It doesn't discriminate. It comes after you. Mm-hmm. Guy, uh, we talk about the safe supply. This was one of the elements that the government came forward with to try and, and curb what was going on. But even these prescription opioids, um, again, I'm not that deep into this, but you hear a lot of this being sold on BC streets. Is that happening? And if so, is it happening at an alarming rate? Diversity. So listen, diversion is absolutely nothing new. This has been going on for decades. And so people who are jumping on saying, you know, that safer supply is the root of the diversion, that's absolutely false. Um, the truth is, is that organized crime has been diverting substances from a multitude of avenues for decades. And for us to even, we would be extremely naive to believe that we could actually somehow, you know, just take away a safe supply program and that would go away. Absolutely not. It's, it's, uh, I can't believe that we're actually talking about trying to innovate to save people's lives and not talking about what's actually killing people. Now the focus has been shifted on, you know, safer supply programs, which is just, it just baffles me because that's not what's killing people. What's killing people and even causing more addiction in our society would be the fentanyl, the xylazine, the benzos. These are extremely potent opioids and benzos that once you take them a couple times, that's it. You're going to continue to use them and seek those drugs. It's a real sobering conversation. Guy, I feel like we could do the whole show together, but thank you for your insight on this. Uh, We're going to chew on some of the things that you said in our next segment, and I appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's my pleasure. Rob Fain for Jill this afternoon. It's been a bit of a heavy show. I promise before everything is said and done, we're going to try to balance the scales on that front. But uh, anytime that you get all the provincial heavies together, no pun intended, to talk about the struggles right now that we're still seeing on the streets and in homes with drug supply and uh, just how much poison is out there right now. Uh, It's good to have conversation about it. It's good to get as many opinions as possible from as many areas around this province as possible, which is why we're going to hop over to Vancouver Island. I'm with Colin Middleton. He's the chair of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Colin, good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, Obviously, this press conference is still going. There's a number of people that are stepping to the microphone. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I heard just even during the break was talking about 
the need to stay focused on this safe supply that, you know what, uh, maybe it's not as effective as we want it to be right now, but we've got to stay the course. Do you think that's the proper way to go? Well, I mean, it's sort of like I, I was listening in as well, and I think uh, Bonnie Henry, you know, she said a lot. And, you know, she did acknowledge, too, that um, they need to be de- addressing uh, prevention from people starting to get involved in these drugs in the first place. And they also need to work with law enforcement. So, I mean, that's that's at least a, a, also a step in the right direction. Safe supply, I would say, is, you know, broad public support and tolerance for this sort of thing um, is, I would say, it's contingent on um, it, the safe supply not getting into the wrong hands, which is which is one of the reasons why we've been so vocal about the issue of diversion. Well, let's talk about that. I, I think you've got a couple of forks in the road. So let me start with the one on the far left here, and let's talk about the policing. Because I, I look at crime in general, and I've said this for a long time, that police are so overwhelmed by what's going on in this province, in this region. But let's let's pare down on Nanaimo. Do you feel that you have enough law enforcement in your region to truly deal with this problem? I mean, I'd have to ask the police that question. I mean, they, they have to... Ha- I think more than anything, they need to have the authority and autonomy to actually keep the public safe and do their jobs. I mean, when when what they're essentially being reduced to is just kind of babysitting uh, prolific offenders and known notorious drug dealers, I'd say they're not really, you know, even if they want to keep the public safe, there's their, their hands are tied. So, you know, we need to start by empowering the people that are trying to protect our communities on the front lines to let them do their job, um, obviously with accountability, but really, I mean, by and large, um, you know, most people who would be confronted by um, a, a somebody involved in gangs, organized crime, um, or violent prolific offenders, you know, would, would welcome in, in a difficult situation uh, somebody from the RCMP stepping in to keep them safe. Yeah. The other thing that... Uh You know, I'm young enough to remember the club scene. And one of the things in the people that I talk to that are still active in the club scene is I'm hearing that this type of drug is cool again and that it's almost like a craft beer industry in, you know, take something like cocaine and how it's laced. But now it's flavored cocaine. And, you know, you've got coconut flavors and chocolate flavors and all these little things that are making it cool again. So here we are as a province, as a government trying to um, a get safe supply in there and try to wean people off. And yet it's it's got. A, a cool appeal to it again. Yeah, I mean, we also need to look at our celebrity culture and our, who are actually the role models of our youth right now. Like, what are they doing? I mean, this is, this is you know, it's obvious. I mean, we've known this for decades, that these drugs are not safe to use recreationally. People use them because they experience a very short-term fix that makes them feel really good and they you know some people are peer pressured and feel like they're cool by taking it and whatever but i mean the long-term impacts ultimately will mount and i mean if you're if you're involved in a drug culture that's going to literally melt your brain over the course of of 10 years of using i mean people need to understand that that these drugs are not just all all just party and 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 cool i mean like they, most people that are that fall into heavy addiction and are able to get themselves clean again and out of it. I mean, they they are 
you know, they will be the first to to acknowledge the 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 damage that is has done to their to their mind and body. I mean, people like just because somebody is young and still you know is able to metabolize this stuff faster than somebody else doesn't mean it doesn't change over time. I mean, people like are are we need to get education. People need to our role models, um, you know, people that actually are influencing our youth need to be more responsible. I mean, it's it's just out of hand. The other thing I want to mention, and it's the other proverbial fork in the road that I mentioned a couple of moments ago, uh, the fight for the street, the fight for supply right now. We talk about gangs and we always assume it's guys with leather coats, but there is a number of different people that are all fighting to get their supply in and trying to do this rather aggressively, which makes the streets overall a little less safer, no? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd contend too at this point that we're not in a war on drugs. We are in a war over drugs. And the belligerents are organized transnational um, crime networks, as well as the federal and provincial governments who are trying to get in the action. We have we have people that are profit seeking in the in the um, uh, opioid drug markets that are that are setting up shop here in B.C. And I mean, we, we can't be naive about this. I mean, this is the, the people that keep suffering. You know, the, the why is it that we keep every time there's a, a we realize problems with these drugs, we we look to, you know, double down and increase supply of these things and just say that we're going to be better this time. I mean, there's there is there is a specific design purpose for these drugs in a medical sense. But re- like recreationally, there there really there isn't other than this this uh this uh, social hysteria. I mean, mm-hmm. we we need to kind of cut through this. I mean, like, I mean, it, it's really frustrating to, to to keep talking about this over and over again. But um, here in Nanaimo, I mean, we see the impacts of of uh, what happens as people uh, descend into these really deep, dark addictions that can't get out of them because of they're, they're physiologically addicted now. And, and we see the suffering, people languishing on the street, dying all the time. I hear sirens around my house every single day of, of people going, responding to drug overdoses. And even the non-fatal overdoses causes significant damage to a person. So, like, the message needs to get through to, to young people, to parents, to policymakers to everyone in society is like look like this is not worth it like this is these drugs are so dangerous that like we need people to understand that this is not like this isn't going to end well if we keep just encouraging and and supporting people to to take these 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 drugs like now we're like i don't know where this where this uh news conference was headed but the first 30 minutes of it all i could think was oh my gosh they're going to announce that they're going to start they're going to start uh, introducing more fentanyl into into safe supply programs like I, and like that that's what it seemed like this was where this was headed and it's just it's so it's it's horrifying and discouraging um to think that we're not instead of addressing the root causes of addiction instead of actually trying to educate people to prevent people from getting involved in drug drug use from from helping our getting a mental health and addiction support 
system in place that's publicly accessible and isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg? Mm. Like, where is all that? Like, it's crickets. It's great points, Colin. I wish we could talk for longer, but I do thank you for your insight today. It's, it's great stuff. Come back yeah. again, will you? Okay, for sure. I'm fan for Jill. Hope you're having a great afternoon. You know, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I went shopping just the other day on the weekend with my wife for groceries and uh, saw the bill. Came to just over $100. We weren't hammered at home, but we're only carrying two bags back to the car. I thought to myself, we spent over a hundred bucks and that's all we're getting. And we didn't do anything gaudy. We just went and got the basics. And you know, that's one of the challenges we're facing right now is everything's more expensive, groceries and uh, gas and housing affordability. Um, Angus Reed came out with a poll just the other day talking about housing in this city and in this province and in this country and how even with one more bump from the Bank of Canada, it's going to put a lot of people into a real tough situation. And I think my family's there already, so I can only imagine what many Canadians are facing right now. But to talk about this, one of our favorites, I'm glad that I finally get the opportunity to speak with Sachi Curl, president of the Angus Reed Institute. Sachi, good afternoon. That's so kind of you. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the one thing that I want to get into is I'm, I'm a big poll guy. I love hearing stats and numbers. Maybe that's my sports background. But one of the more staggering polls that you've put out in recent memory, because I didn't realize it with such a, a, a simple action from the Bank of Canada, one that they've tried to put off for the last couple of quarters. If they do one more bump, there's going to be a lot of Canadians that are going to be hurting. And this is a trend that we've been seeing for a while now. So this isn't a, a, a one-off set of data that, that we released this morning. People often ask me, Rob, they say, Shachi, what are you, what are you seeing with uh, that level of uh, debt stress, cost of living stress? It's been up and elevated, and that anxiety has been there for a while now, going on the better part of two years. And I think for me, that is the more um, notable or alarming takeaway. You can have uh, situations where, yes, cost of living been and, and inflation's been spiking. It, it predates the pandemic. It predates all of those interest rate hikes. It goes back to when we were dealing with global supply chain issues. You know, think back to two years ago, 18 months ago, uh, when people were more concerned about would their Christmas presents arrive in time because of all of those problems. We were not at that point anticipating uh, multiple uh, interest rate lifts as a result of the Bank of Canada uh, raising its uh, main rate. And if we see another increase, what it does is it, has the impact of just continuing to uh, push upwards these cost pressures because not only are we paying more at the grocery store, like you say, and and uh, paying more for gasoline, paying more for our daily commutes and for what feels like everything else because don't forget the labor shortage and tipflation and how everything is now just a reason to, to increase cost pressures. But... For somebody uh, who is dealing with a variable rate mortgage, someone whose mortgage is coming due in the near future, or someone who is renting from a landlord whose mortgage is coming due in the near future, it all increases upward cost pressure on everybody in terms of all the facets of the places in their lives where they spend money. I, I... 
as a variable guy, that really hits home with me. And it, it kind of, you know, psychologically makes me feel like I'm, I'm fighting an uphill battle. One of the things that came out in one of your recent polls uh, was that one third of Canadians figure that they'll be worse off financially next year and that financial pessimism has risen to 63% amongst struggling financially Canadians. That to me is jarring that two out of three Canadians just mentally feel like they're not winning. And not only are they feeling uh, really tough about the year ahead and where they'll be a year from now, they're already telling us, nearly half of Canadians are telling us that they already feel as though they're worse off now than they were a year ago. So worse today, worse a year from now. Uh, that these are, these are numbers that I would say are fairly unprecedented when we look back over the 10 to 12-year trend. For the most part, people actually think they'll, they'll be doing okay. They'll more or less be in a, in a similar situation a year from now. They more or less say they are in a similar situation as they were a year before. We have not seen numbers like this as elevated as they have been over a sustained period of time. So this isn't just a blip. This is now sort of settling into a new reality in a way that we haven't seen, you know, going back to, to well before 2010. And again, so much of that has to do with the impacts of labor shortages, rising cost of everything, and also really critically, those rising interest rates. And, you know, if somebody you mentioned that you're on a variable mortgage, yep. there's a massive difference between someone who, who signed uh, a mortgage at 1.79% uh, at, at, at an opportune time, so to speak, uh, at, the, at the low point of the pandemic when interest rates were as close to zero as we were going to see them. And now seeing things at 3% or higher, um, you're really in a situation where for so many people that, that in practical terms represents a near doubling. Shachi, let's talk about renting because my kids are just old enough now that they've left the house. I'm an empty nester in my 40s. I never thought I would be, but they came back very... <laughs> They're going to boomerang. You realize that, right? Oh, they'll be back. They're coming back. Yeah, They're no, I, back. I know that all too well. And it's because they say things like this, like, wow, I didn't think... Um, that it was as bad as it was. And we're talking about, I mean, Vancouver is one of the most expensive cities in the world. I understand that. But what do you say to this young generation who maybe doesn't have to worry about mortgages yet, but they're looking at getting out there as well when maybe they're not quite ready to worry about what the Bank of Canada is doing, but you talk about, you know, shortages in the restaurant industry and in a a number of service industries. What do you say to this young 20-something group that is just kind of like overwhelmed by all the data? I mean... I I don't mean to sound pejorative, but frankly, when you look at what a lot of young people are dealing with, especially really young people, I wonder how checked in they are to these issues and and how much they're actually connecting the dots. So you may have people out there who are renting going, gosh, rent is really high. I don't have to worry about paying a mortgage. But what they do need to realize and worry about and connect the dots between is chances are they're paying a landlord who is worrying about a mortgage and absolutely passing the costs on to their tenant because they can. And because uh, we've, we've sort of built a housing system on a, on a house of cards that is heavily reliant on landlords and, and owner operator uh, people who, who own maybe a, a second property or a third property and they're renting those properties out. So nobody is looking to lose money in a situation like that. And what it is, 
uh, resulting in is, I think, you know, some some pretty jarring home truths, not only in Metro Vancouver, Rob, but in 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 Kelowna, in Prince George, yep. in Victoria and environs. It's it's up everywhere. Well, Shachi, I look back at a place that I used to rent back in 2014, and I thought it was just so, such an exorbitant number. It was 2000 a month for a one-bedroom. Uh, I looked back in 2023. They're charging $4,200 for the same place. They've more than doubled the ask in just under a decade. So heaven forbid somebody's out there trying to do it by themselves. But uh, it's the data that keeps us engaged and keeps us interesting. So keep doing what you're doing, Shachi. Uh, I love it. And more than anything, thank you for coming on today. What a thrill. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Rob. We'll talk again. Shachi Curl, president of Angus Reeds Institute.